my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club Shocktober. Oh. Will, you're stealing my bit. <laughs> Ooh. I want to suck your blood. That's the creeping door. Welcome you, welcoming you to uh, Inner Sanctum. Oh wait, what's that? It's the Creeper, the classic Universal monster, right, Will? Oh, everyone loves the Creeper. It's like Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, the Creeper, the Creeper, and uh. Uh, the man-made monster and the she-wolf of London. Night monster, don't forget him. Uh, who was strange confession? That was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so if people are going, huh? What? That's because today's episode is dedicated to the forgotten side of Universal horror films. Yes, the studio that brought us Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the creature from the Black Lagoon, all the classics. But boy, they made some movies in between those ones. And also. The universal horror canon is vast, and it's multifaceted because there's a first wave and there's a second wave, and there's even even a first wave before the first wave. It's actually a bigger, messier thing than you might think that it is, and we'd like to provide just a little bit of order, a little bit of context to this huge slop of movies. And will we find some hidden gems along the way? Eh, no. <laughs> Spoiler alert! No. Uh, although, yeah, uh, we were hoping to. Yeah. So, essentially, Essentially, for the last two years, maybe actually, Shout Factory, mm-hmm. that great Blu-ray and DVD company, has put out a series of Universal Horror Blu-ray sets, four movies each. I think they did six of them, mm-hmm. full of movies that don't have monsters in them. No Dracula to be found, no Frankenstein, but all these other movies, all of these movies like The Mad Doctor of Market Street or The Black Cat not the one with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. But they also put out The Black Cat with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Oh, that's true. That's true. But then there's another one from the early 40s that just has Bela, and it's not the same movie. And all of these are under a universal horror label. So we wanted to go exploring in the dark matter of the universal horror. Build our own dark universe, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. If only the dark universe had become successful enough, we could have finally got like a big budget remake of Jungle Woman. What's funny about that is that character got like multiple movies she which got three films which yeah. was just a ripoff of cat people anyway but get this what if it wasn't a cat the woman transformed into what if it was a gorilla <laughs> i'm sold too, yeah. too bad about the movie oh yeah i think we're gonna be saying that a lot when we talk about these films so start at the beginning will well when justin proposed this topic i was very excited to do it because i love universal horror universal horror movies are the first horror movies that i think i ever really loved when i was a kid when i was you know eight years old nine years old I had a bit of an inkling to watch a horror movie at Halloween, but I was too much of a fraidy cat, too much of a sensitive child to watch, you know, cool, scary, modern horror movies. So, yeah, your pet cemeteries. <laughs> yeah, <we're laughs> pet cemeteries. Like, too scary. <laughs> so, yeah, I instead watched Frankenstein starring Boris Karloff or Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or The Wolfman, stuff like that. And I think forever that those movies sort of set a template in my mind of what horror looks like. Like the default when I think of a horror movie is like Bella Lugosi's Dracula Castle. Seeing those armadillos walk around, seeing that fog, seeing the stark black and white, the the kind of 
dusty quality to the images. There's a professionalism to any universal product mm. because they were a machine and they were working at a studio level that the monograms or even the republics were not. All of these movies, every universal horror movie, even the worst of them, looks great. Fantastic, beautiful, heavy shadows. The early ones like Dracula and Frankenstein have that great German expressionist derived aesthetic. I love those early ones particularly because you know, I love movies that create a sort of dream space, a sort of otherworldly space. I love movies that their mise-en-scene, if you will, is a little bit fake, a little bit otherworldly. Yeah, that uncanny quality I'm always looking for in movies. And so we should start at the beginning. It's like, how did Universal Horror get itself started? And Hunchback of Notre Dame, 1923, Lon Chaney. <laughs> yeah, so Lon Chaney Sr. is, I guess... Well, I, I was going to call him the first horror star. I'm sure somebody can contradict me on that. But, <laughs> yes. but I'm going to say first horror star. One of the biggest stars in Hollywood in the 1920s has an untimely death. Carl Lemley, the head of Universal Studios, had... Carl Lemley Jr. Who wanted to make a movie of Dracula based on the then popular stage adaptation of Dracula. And Carl Lemley, the head of the studio, wasn't all that enthusiastic, but sort of agreed to do it as a favor to Junior. Because, like, this kind of stuff, you have to remember, this was pretty horrific stuff at the time. Like, drinking blood, uh, coffins and shit like that. If only they could look at a widely successful stage play to actually make it financially viable to make this movie. Oh, wait, it's happening? And Bela Lugosi is the star of it? 1931's Dracula and then Frankenstein become huge, era-defining hits. That's followed in 1932 by movies like The Mummy, Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Old Dark House. Our old friend The Invisible Man comes in 1933. Our old friends Professor Valdemar and Doctor, I don't know, the stars of The Black Cat, whatever mm-hmm. their names are, they come in 1934. Well, I I think it's important that we should section off the old dark house because it will be the template for most of the films that follow because universal and all of these companies could not get it in their head that what kids who would be most of the audience that would go see these movies they wanted monsters <laughs> but there was a shame you could feel that they're like we don't do monsters the that mon- is- monsters are abject exactly yeah. we don't want to do that and there's also censorship issues as well so like the old dark house and perhaps the idea of a monster then revealed to be oh just someone in disguise that is easier to swallow now there's an initial run of universal horror movies that lasts from 1931's Dracula to approximately 1937's Night Key with Boris Karloff. But then really 1936's Dracula's Daughter. And that's the golden age. That's where a lot of the real classics are. That's where such subversive masterworks as The Bride of Frankenstein exist. But then a couple of factors. There's the Hayes Code, stricter enforcement of Hollywood censorship that made such shenanigans as Colin Clive yelling, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. That would not be permissible anymore. The sight of Boris Karloff throwing a little girl into the lake in Frankenstein, that would not be permissible anymore. But also, in 1936 came the famous British horror ban, and... I don't know exactly how official that ban was. And you know what film caused it? Bride of Frankenstein? No, it was supposedly The Raven, the Lou Landers film. Ah, starring Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Well, that's a pretty pretty grisly film for It's, it's all time. about torture, yeah. Yeah, Bela Lugosi plays an Edgar Allan Poe-obsessed torture guy. I don't <laughs> yeah, know I think him. he's a doctor. Has a whole dungeon of torture with booby traps based on Poe's 
uh, story. So he's got he's got a pendulum that swings, for example. I love the Raven, by the way. Incredible Bela Lugosi performance. From the director of Detour, uncredited, that's, of course. That's not true. <laughs> Lou Landers. Lou Landers making his feature debut with the Raven. And the film is clearly modeled off of Edgar G. Almer's The Black Cat. That's right. Because it's the same kind of like psycho, you know, violent S&M style, like mm. roles for Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. And they give like master performances, just given the space. Yeah. yeah, love it. So that initial run of movies ends. There's the British horror ban. Again, I don't know how official the ban was, but certainly the British censors discouraged the production of horror movies. And from 1937 to 1939, there essentially were none. People like Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi didn't get a lot of work in that period. But then in 1938, a Los Angeles theater had a five-week capacity run playing a revival triple bill of Dracula, Frankenstein, and a film from a rival studio, Son of Kong. And this inspired Universal to do a nationwide double feature reissue of Dracula and Frankenstein. And it made a lot of money. And they were like, okay, you know what? There's enough of a market just here that we can continue with this. But let's make sure not to spend too much money. <laughs> right. So in 1939, you get Son of Frankenstein. Boris Karloff is back as the Frankenstein monster. Bela Lugosi as Igor. Basil Rathbone as Dr. Frankenstein's son. This is kind of... I mean, I'm not going to say it's the last A-level universal horror movie. But Crazy expressionist sets as well in that film. When you watch it, you're like, whoa, is, did Dr. Caligari come through here? It's certainly, Son of Frankenstein is certainly the last really first rate, I think, universal horror movie. Mm-hmm. And a very expensive film, very successful film. And it essentially launched the next seven or eight years of universal horror movies but almost all of those subsequent movies were b movies they were somewhere between like 60 to 75 minutes long meant to be played on a double bill and they would have this repertory company of actors who would keep showing up over and over again your lionel atwills your lon cheney juniors your bella lugosi's your boris karloff's even (laughs) that's true he would be in it and they were reacting to whatever the trends of the 1940s were. They are obviously very stylistically derived from that golden run of 30s movies. They have some of that expressionist flair, but they're also responding to new trends. And they're also shot on the same sets that were standing at Universal Studios, like the famous Phantom of the Opera set. And they're cheaper. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of old dark house movies, a lot of one house mysteries and whodunits. We need to make clear to people who are not familiar with these horror films around this period is that like this is the kind of movie that they made. When you put horror in the title, if there wasn't any monsters in it, it was going to be an old dark house movie. Yeah, I mean, watching these movies, I think the concept of a horror movie was still like it's not exactly what we think of when we think of a horror movie now. Mm-hmm. Like thrillers and mysteries would have fallen under that category of horror movies. Like, we watched Horror Island from 1941, and if you had to describe it in, like, one sentence, you would go, eh, Scooby-Doo-like, because <laughs> yeah. that's what it is. But you know what? I enjoy it. It just washes over me. Yeah, I had a pretty good time watching it, too. I've already forgotten it. It is 60 minutes long. Mm-hmm. That is how I would describe the movie. It is the ultimate 60-minute-long movie pot boiler and by the way when we were picking movies to watch for this episode we purposefully picked ones that we hadn't heard of ones that we hadn't seen some of the you know least renowned movies that are on those box sets i love looking at the names of the directors and going do i know that person like horror island george wagner oh he directed the wolfman and 
oh, a bunch of other films I haven't heard of. 500 Westerns yeah. and like Man-Made Monster. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's and, what you got. And don't get too excited because the Man-Made Monster probably won't be that impressive. But, you know, going into something I've like... I've seen Hor- Mad Man-Made Monster, by the way. <laughs> Not too impressive. No, but... Going into Horror Island with the context of knowing what it was going to be, I was like, this is fun. There's a lot of traps. A lot of people get murdered one after the other. Yeah, so there are a lot of characters in the movie. You see a lot of this in the 40s Universal Horror movies. A lot of people in a house, and then they're getting killed one by one. And did the butler do it? Uh, is the butler played by Bella Lugosi? Well, then he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. He's just there to throw you off. Could it be Fuzzy Knight, the <laughs> comedic sidekick <laughs> from a bunch of Poverty Row Westerns that did it? A lot of characters. I'm not going to get into all of them in Horror Island, but essentially what the plot is, is you've got a businessman type character who meets a pirate. Yes, <laughs> who, has a <laughs> who has a map. They've got a map. There's a treasure map for an island. And it's like, why don't we uh, create some sort of uh, phony baloney excursion? We can get a bunch of people to go to the island and go on a treasure hunt. And the guy owns the island. I was like, I wish I owned a big castle. <laughs> I, I'd love an island. So they get to the island and then they don't really spend much time looking around the island. They go to a big house. Mm-hmm. Probably the same big house that's in all these movies. Uh, but the shtick is that they're on like a horror tour. So the people... People running the tour are like putting uh, skulls in people's beds or making like loud noise. And what's Ooh. funny is that a bunch of them, they don't have time for this. They're like, oh, yeah, real scary. Like we know this is a shtick. But all of a sudden there, there really is a masked and caped. Well, not masked, a caped man who's running around. <laughs> Could doing... it be Bella Lugosi walking around from Plan 9 from Outer Space? <laughs> nah, it's some other guy. And like all of these old Dark House movies, this is what you want. You want knights in armor. You want bookcases. You want trap doors. You want... All that's uh, missing is a gorilla. Yeah, uh, if there was a gorilla, I mean, just watch the Ritz Brothers and the gorilla. There's all that and a gorilla. Okay, here's another old dark house whodunit that we both watched. 1942's Night Monster. Top build stars, Bella Lugosi and Lionel Atwill. Now, I picked this movie because Bella Lugosi's in it and because I hadn't seen it. Well, I was excited for this movie because in a really great featurette featuring Kim Newman included on one of the Blu-rays, he talks about like, where are the action figures of these? monsters and i believe he mentions night monsters and i was like "Ooh, can't wait to see what this guy looks like oh boy i have tom weaver's book universal horrors which is the definitive study Mm -hmm. of the universal horror movies so it's into great depth on every universal horror film and in that book tom weaver insists this one is really good this is very suspenseful it's one of the best b movies of its era and it's okay. Uh, it's okay. I did like there's a sequence where a skeleton shows up. It just teleports into a room. I'm like, ooh, more of this. I mean, yeah, for me, it ranks uh, number one is gorillas. Number two is skeletons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if there's a number three. <laughs> Bella Lugosi. <laughs> Bella Lugosi. Yeah. So yeah, Bella Lugosi plays a butler. And the minute he showed up as a butler, my heart sinks. <laughs> You're it's like, like, no. Bella's not going to have anything to do here. <laughs> and he doesn't. So the most consequential character in this film is an old, wealthy, wheelchair-bound recluse played by Ralph Morgan. He lives in this vast mansion surrounded by all these shady butlers and maids. He's also got an Eastern mystic on staff. And there's something weird going on where everybody's scared. Um, One of the maids says she knows a secret and she makes her way to town, but in the process she ends back up at the castle and gets strangled. He also has a sister who's under his control on the grounds that she's mad. Now, this sister doesn't think she's mad. In fact, she has brought a lady psychiatrist 
I, I, I don't know. There are so you... many characters. There's also yeah. a pulp writer who lives down the way who shows up as well. Yeah, too many characters, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he, Ralph Morgan, invites over three doctors who he believes are responsible for making him disabled. And as the night goes on, the doctors start dying one by one. Now, you think that Ralph Morgan is the one who's done it, but then he reveals that I'm actually not paralyzed. I'm actually an amputee. I don't have my legs anymore, and I've been keeping it a secret. So then you think, well, it can't be him. Now, I don't want to spoil the big surprise. I'm going to spoil the big surprise. Basically, he shows up, and he has, like, monster arms and legs. (laughs) And it's been working. He's been working with that Eastern mystic. He's been able to conjure those arms and legs. Couldn't you have just made him into a monster? The movie would have jumped 200% in my regard. But instead, it's just the actor is like, and you just see, like, monster arms and legs. Anyway, looks good. Yeah, looks great. Yeah, lots, there's lots of scenes fog outside, and you see it like blowing through the air. Yeah, I think I think it's a pretty well made movie. It's got some atmosphere. I was just a little bored. By the it. Universal horror films don't have the same claustrophobia that like the Poverty Row horror films have, and that can sometimes be to their detriment. Yeah, I would like to get into this a little bit because I've watched a lot of Poverty Row horror movies now, and. If you were listening to this podcast for the first time and you don't know what those are, Poverty Row Studios are a couple rungs below the major studios. They would make B-movies sold on a rental basis. They would not share in the profits. They would just rent them out to studios. They would just rent them out to theaters. They they were schlock, Mm -hmm. essentially. And they were treated as shot in like five to ten days. They were the direct-to-video movies of their era. Uh, But, I don't know, a movie like The Mad Monster or a movie like, uh, what's another one, Bowery at Midnight or something like that. Strangler of the Swamp. Yeah, like, you know, sometimes they're good sometimes they're bad sometimes they're they're sort of okay but there's a certain atmosphere you know like the the fog in those movies is there because they really can't afford sets Mm -hmm. and i don't know i like that there's there's a little bit more junky surrealism to those movies whereas some of these universal b movies are beautiful but they're very normal and i do feel that when i hear about you know some of the real big fans talk about them it's a we had to be there kind of moment. Like, like you had to watch them when you were a kid in the 50s. on public access, yeah. like maybe a horror host. This is all that you had. And so you would see like the night monster and you'd be like, oh, yeah, this is cool. As opposed to now where we are just deluged by plenty. <laughs> Okay, so this is the thing. A movie like 1931's Dracula, it's a very flawed film. The plot's not great. The pacing is not great. The acting's not great. It's very creaky. It has, though, that otherworldly quality, that dreamlike ambiance. And I feel like some of that carries over to the Poverty Row horror movies. A movie like Strangler of the Swamp has a little bit of that magic because it's so impoverished. Mm-hmm. And by the time a movie like Night Monster is being made at Universal, again, I it's not bad. It, it's got a lot to love about it, and I respect the craft of it, but it, it doesn't it doesn't feel um, mystical in that way. You don't think it has that Ford BB style, the director <laughs> of the film, the man behind Bella Lugosi's The Phantom Creeps? Well, that's a good one. I love, I love The Phantom Creeps because Bella's got a big beard in it, and he's got a big <laughs> scowly robot. And other than that uh the director mostly made serials like you look at just serial after serial after serial that he made anyway we do have a monster to talk about and his name is that how you're gonna call him <laughs> uh, his his name is rondo hatton so we're gonna talk about one of the very last universal horror movies which came out in 1946 it's called house of horrors and there was one last big horror star one one last gasp his name was rondo hatton and he had been in movies ever since the 30s and he had always been a very strange looking character actor. And as the years went by, he got stranger and stranger looking to the point that his face, genuinely, nobody has ever had a face like this in movies. Well, he had a disease. 
exactly. He had a disease called, I may be mispronouncing this, acromegaly. Mm, yep, that's. I'm glad you took that bullet because I had it written down and I was like, how am I going to pronounce this? And supposedly uh, the side effects of being hit by mustard gas during World War One. Right. He inhaled mustard gas and this led to complications. This disease distorts and enlarges your features. So by 1946, when he was 51, which, by the way, was the year that he died, because this is a progressive illness, folks. His face had become, like, genuinely enormous, genuinely enormous features. He looked, well, I'm not going to say anything insensitive Mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, you know, because it is a real disease. But he was definitely striking. And that's what captured the imagination of anyone who saw the very few horror movies that he actually acted in. Yeah. So, I mean, in the 30s, he just shows up as just kind of like a a striking looking character actor in movies like Safe in Hell. He's in that. Yeah. Henry King, the director, spotted Rondo because... Because Rondo was just a reporter. And he's like, hey, you want to be in the pictures? You got a face that I think would really pop. He's in the Oxbow incident as Mm -hmm. well. He's one of the, yeah, one of the um, people that are in the mob. And then he started appearing as sort of like a a heavy, a a goon, a supporting player in some of the Sherlock Holmes movies that Universal was making in the 40s. In the last year, he basically had two vehicles before he died. House of Horrors and The Brute Man. Well, the Sherlock Holmes movies is what actually led to him being dubbed like the Creeper from his role in The Pearl of Death in 1944. So House of Horrors, which I kind of liked. I actually really like House of Horrors, yeah. Yeah, this one is set in New York City, and one of the main characters is this misunderstood, disgruntled modern artist, played by an actor named Martin Kozlak, who is very good. Mm-hmm. You know, gives a great tortured performance, sort of like Colin Clive as Frankenstein, actually. Yeah, he, he has the accent and everything. <laughs> yeah, thinks he's a genius, he thinks he's making this true, honest art, but the snooty critical establishment has destroyed his career, particularly one critic played by Alan Napier, who would go on to play Alfred the Butler on TV's <laughs> Batman. Uh, he comes in and says, oh, Oh, this is this is trash. This is trash. Later that night, this artist is going to try to kill himself. But before he can jump into the Thames, he sees a body float up and it is Rondo Hatton's body. And he just says, what a face. I have to make a sculpture out of this. And Rondo's like, oh, OK, I'll follow you. <laughs> so Rondo comes in and then the artist is just ranting and raving. He says it would be great if somebody just killed this critic. And Rondo says that would make you happy. Excuse me. Goes out, he kills Alan Napier. Can I say that if I had seen this as a kid, I think I would have been disturbed by it because they talk about the creeper breaks people's spines and that's how they die. If I were a kid and saw this, I would have been disturbed by Rondo. Yes. I would have had trouble with him, I think. <laughs> You're like, oh, that must be the classic makeup of the guy that did Frankenstein, right? They're like, mm, no, not, not so much. But this movie is also filled with like Rondo's shadow creeping up towards people. It's well made. You mm-hmm. know, it's got all the good universal production values. Well, you know, the director of this picture is the one that was also behind the classic Poverty Row horror film, The Devil Bat. Gene Yarbrough. Man, I love Gene Yarbrough. Gene Yarbrough has one of the greatest filmographies anyone's ever had. At Universal, he made She-Wolf of London the same year, by the way, as House of Horrors. He made The Brute Man. He also made a ton of Abbott and Costello movies like Jack and the Beanstalk, The Naughty 90s, In Society. He also made the Poverty Row classic King of the Zombies. Not to mention hillbillies in a haunted house oh boy <laughs> i mean one of the great careers and yeah i love the devil bat with bella lugosi but house of horrors yeah as the movie continues this artist you know he sees the death he figured out what happened and he's like hey this is this is kind of good uh you know you know rondo i would also love it if this other critic died and rondo's like huh okay 
So Rana goes on this killing spree of critics, which thank God, you know, <laughs> finally being taken down a peg. I love how the critics in this movie are depicted as just like the, the richest people in society. And they're also not only snotty, but they're like, oh, yeah, I'll write a terrible review for him. As one artist points out, he's like, but you liked me last week. And he's like, well, I changed my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like the fountainhead or something like that. <laughs> There is another artist character played by Robert Lowery who went on to play Batman in one of the serials. So this movie has two Batman act <laughs> franchise actors in it. And he plays the good artist, a more commercial artist. Now, the other character was lambasted for creating ugly, hideous work. But Robert Lowry has been lambasted for creating work that's too commercial. But anyway, the movie's sympathies are on Robert Lowry's side because he's on All America. <laughs> yeah, know, he's, good. you know, the... He's uh, not too artsy-fartsy. He's like a director who makes uh, universal horror films, He's if a real Gene Yarbrough, if yeah. you will. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, the movie goes long. I, I'm done with the plot synopsis. Yeah, the creeper is just murdering people left and right. A little over an hour. You've got the combined charisma of Rondo Hatton and Robert Lowry. <laughs> and with Batman that, and the creeper himself. And yeah, I, I had a pretty good time with it. It's fun. Yeah, I had a fun it one. Moves. It's stylish. It moves. Some of the ideas that were presented, I was like, oh boy, if I had seen this one, this had come out and been a teen or stumbled upon it, like introduced by Elvira or something like that at like uh, 1 a.m. in the morning, I would have been, oh boy, that would have given me nightmares. And we should point out that like a lot of these movies, the reason that they have, you know, such staying power with people that saw them when they were young is that they were sold in bulk to like uh, whatever your local affiliate was. That's right. Every town on whatever the local station was would have this package called Shock Theater, where they would just play universal horror movies. And sometimes it would be Dracula. Sometimes it would be the Brute Man, mm -hmm. you know, all of them flowing, filling up the cheap slots on TV. And Rondo Hatton, he starred in House of Horrors and The Brute Man, and he passed away before either one of them came out. He's the James Dean of horror. <laughs> yes. And I mean, he is still uh, cherished to this day. The very famous award ceremony, the Rondos, the statue is of his face. Yes. And, you know, questions have been raised over the years. Were they exploiting him and his... Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, he chose to do it, too. He's he a, did. He, he was a man with, with agency. You may feel uncomfortable, though, being asked to find horrifying the victim of a disease. If it makes you feel better, he's actually a very short man. And you can notice sometimes in House of Horrors where you're like, wait, he's not that tall, is he? Even you're, though they portray him as like a hulking figure. You're right. But his proportions, like everywhere, are just just off. Universal Horror didn't hang up exactly after that. But the ones that kind of trickled out, I believe they're on volume five of Universal Horror. Eh, nobody really talks about them that much. Well, the classic period, like 1946 is typically considered kind of the demarcation point, and then tastes changed. None of the great monsters continued after 1948's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. That would be the last of the classic Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman incarnations that we know. And then, as I said, taste changed, so you get more atomic age films. Yeah, science fiction films kind of become the thing that you go to if you want to do those base genre thrills yeah and so you get like the giant mantis was a universal production the creature from the black lagoon movies are like kind of in that mm -hmm. lineage as well so they're not i mean he's technically considered a universal monster but he came way after all of like the other gay and he's responding to different trends mm -hmm. he's part of a different zeitgeist yeah science fiction you know radioactive the atomic age and you know universal i guess is still making horror movies today so it's never really ended has it uh... a little movie called van helsing <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I hate to break it to you, Will. That came, movie came out more than a decade ago. <laughs> oh, man. I'm getting old. Universal is constantly trying to do stuff with its horror properties, its horror monsters, turn them into sort of an Avengers-like brand. But the problem is Dracula's in the public domain. Anyone can make a Dracula. I think that the issue that they have is that they don't understand that people just want to see horror films featuring these characters. And Universal could do it with a, you know, slightly higher budget, but they decided not to because they want blockbusters. That's what gets them raises. I also think there's a way to make these characters relevant to the current moment, but they just haven't figured it out and they haven't got the people to make the movies that would be able to figure it out. Well, Blumhouse now has, I think, the Universal properties and they're going forward with it. Yeah, I mean, I'll be interested to see if they can do it. I mean, I wonder how relevant Frankenstein would be considered to a modern audience. No more Frankensteins, please. I've had enough. (laughs) All that stuff about playing God Mm -hmm. seemed much more current in the 30s. That was what people were (laughs) thinking about then. But I don't know, Dracula. Well, look, I love these characters. If only there was some untold story they could tell. A Dracula untold, if you will. (laughs) What about an I, Frankenstein? Oh, God, I watched that movie yesterday. You know what would be great? If Frankenstein could fight demons and gargoyles for some reason. (laughs) Come on, guys. It's not that hard. Well, folks, Universal Horror. I love the Universal Horror movies. I was glad to watch some of the lesser ones. Makes me realize, though, that with some of these lesser ones, I like the Poverty Row horrors better. I agree with you. Now, Justin, do we have any letters on this fine Shocktober evening? We do. I even have a Shocktober-related question that someone sent in. It doesn't need to be Shocktober-related, folks. If you have a question or comment that you want to let us know, send it our way at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the letter goes, hey, Justin and Will, long time, first time, hope this catches you for Shocktober. He uh, capitalized that and put two exclamation points. So, you know, I tried to read it as it was written. I'll quickly move past the general love the podcast. It helped me get past a hard time in my life with your good nature and knowledgeable love of film to say thank you for introducing me to Jess Franco. Ah. It was an episode I skipped for a while in your back catalog. How dare anyone skip an episode that we do? (laughs) But your description of his hallucinatory style piqued my interest, and I have quickly grown to love what I have seen from him. Wow, we introduced someone to Jess Franco and they fell in love with him? What what a feat. You remember when we were younger, when before we had a podcast and we would see stuff like this, and it would be a fight just to get your friends to be interested in it. I would not show my friends a Jess Franco film. There's no no way. It'd be a fight to get your friends interested in like a fucking jackie chan movie to be honest like Mm -hmm. even easy stuff and now jackie chan is passe now we're like what 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 stuff can we really get people into (laughs) yeah yeah like you know what i'm constantly doing this podcast being like what if i did a sean costello episode could i get people interested in sean costello uh the answer was no No. but we did it (laughs) i tried and the letter continues but I was shocked to learn that you had never done a Jean Galen episode, since he seems to share much of the same aesthetic sensibilities as Franco, maybe somewhat more mired in a sort of French art scene. Okay, I'm just going to confess something right here, right now. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a Jean Galen film. Not a single one! I, I didn't want to admit this in front of you. Oh. How were you not tempted by all those Blu-rays that were coming out? I've got a box set of some of his movies. Mm-hmm. Every time October rolls around, I'm like, I'm going to watch this. But, you know, okay, I'm going to watch one this week. All right, so, this is it. We're I'm doing so genre this Shocktober. It's been decided. Oh, God. There's so many other things I want to do, though. But maybe if we, it like, goes we, into November. Okay, wait, can we do it next October? Because <laughs> I want... Oh, no, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I want to start watching them now, and then I want to let them marinate. The thing is, I believe we said genre next Shocktober since we started the podcast. Okay, here's the thing. <laughs> 
<laughs> I keep saying, here's the thing. I gotta yeah. stop saying that. <laughs> Joe D'Amato, Jess Franco, these are people who snuck up on me over the years. These are people who I didn't necessarily like at first mm-hmm. glance, and then I, I came to love them. I feel so much pressure with Jean Roland. I Do feel- you? Because I don't feel like he has, like, super fans. You don't really hear him talked about that much, because if you I, did... I want to I love him so much, and I'm worried that I but, won't. But you haven't watched one of his films. I know. Films. I know. I just, I don't know. For some reason, I've got some mental block with him. Here's it's, the thing. It's mostly uh, nude ladies walking around in big, long cloaks, well, I and like they that. suck each other's blood. So it's a Jess Franco movie. Okay, yeah. No, I, I am going to watch one. I actually... Okay, at home... Next to my TV is a Blu-ray copy of The Nude Vampire mm-hmm. that I'm meaning to watch this month. I'm going to watch it. Did you... I'm so ashamed to admit this in front of the whole listening audience. <laughs> you know what? I'm not a huge Jean Roland fan in the sense that I haven't really dipped into his filmography that much. Mostly because I found it overwhelming. And like yeah, Jess Franco... Yeah, it's overwhelming. There are so many of them. Where do I'm you start? Like, They're all vampire films. Have I seen this one? Did <laughs> I see that yeah. one? <laughs> So, yeah. but I do have the uh, Kayla Janice book that she published of Jean Galin essays. So, you know, there is textual material there you can jump into. And she gave me an excuse. He was French. He actually wrote his autobiography in French and it hasn't been uh, translated into English. So I could jump into there. All right. Yeah, no, I'm going to I'm going to finally watch watch one. And, you know, to be pe- so up my alley, too. I know I'll love he him. He even wrote like sexy novels himself while he was directing movies oh a real ed wood yeah so he is up your alley and i mean the letter writer points out you know he fell in love with jean Roland's style instantly and that he says have you ever seen a movie that you either wanted to make and or write or as if it had been come out of your mind uh, citizen kane <laughs> I, I would have liked to have made that one <laughs> but maybe you watch these jean Roland movies and connect with some Perhaps not at first, but like Jess Franco, it may be like a, you know, as it piles on, you're like, okay, I see the themes that he goes back to over yeah. and over again. And you know what? I'll take this journey with you. All right. So not this October, next October. I promise. And by then we will have watched enough Jean Galang that will come in prepared. What's funny about this is I believe like in the teens of episodes, someone sent us an email about Jean Galang. Oh man. <laughs> I don't know. I just feel intimidated by the topic. And it's if, a combination of I know I'm going to love it so much and I want to love it the right way. And, and if I had pressed Will, I'm sure he would have gone into it. But again, like I'm not enough of a Jean Roland head to be like, we got to do this. So yeah. perhaps next October rolls around. Me and Will were like, we love Jean Roland. We have Jean Roland tattoos. We all we always loved him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have always been in love with Jean Roland. Check the <laughs> records. And we go back and like edit the episodes anytime that we <laughs> mention him. So thank you, Cole, for making Will make this shameless admittance. Shameful. So, I should say that there's nothing shameful about not seeing a movie. There's many reasons people don't see movies. Thank you. There are so many movies out there. Exactly. I've seen a lot of Joe D'Amato movies. <laughs> I react like I can't believe you haven't seen it it's not in a dismissive way it's more of a I can't wait for you to see these movies thank you yes thank you so thank you very much for that letter Cole and again you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com so what are we doing on our Patreon this week Will well speaking of Euro Trash Tour, as we discuss a less esteemed one we talk about Bruno Mattei the hackiest of the Italian hacks and we talk about his movie Hell of the Living Dead oh man the film was an original Goblin score no, wait a minute. This sounds familiar. It sounds exactly like Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> it is a bald-faced Dawn of the Dead ripoff, and we just sort of have a bit of a riff session on Italian <laughs> horror in general. You know, it's Shocktober, folks. Yeah, you want to know what films me and Will saw in theaters? Well, we discuss it. <laughs> uh, it's interesting to me. Yep, it Maybe is. it will be to you. I don't know. <laughs> so, just imagine you're the third person in the room hanging out with us. You can check Pause that out. Pause the podcast and then start talking to your <laughs> iPhone about the sto- the films you saw in a theater. <laughs> 
and then <laughs> you, press play. You can check that out at patreon.com slash the important center club. And then pause again and be like, why are you ignoring me? I want to be joining in this conversation. <laughs> so next week, we're doing something really close to my heart. It is horror porn. Well, it's close <laughs> to everyone's heart, isn't it? No, that was a joke. Uh, Will came up with this topic. And I like to ask, Will, are there enough movies to really sink our teeth into this? I think there are enough movies. Horror porn, much like universal horror movies, are a broad amorphous genre mm -hmm. that... Thriller! Yeah. Or no, Driller, I mean. The thriller porn parody. Oh, maybe we should watch that. Okay, <laughs> that one I have seen. What about uh, Repenetrator? See, I know all the late period ones. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Want to get into that. Nothing yeah. after 1985. Yeah. I don't know any of that. You know what? Needs to be shot on film. <laughs> Otherwise, get out of here. I agree. Are we, or we should watch a, a Frankenpenis starring John Wayne Bobbitt. <laughs> oh, no! No. Well, that is definitely past the 80s. <laughs> yeah, no, we shouldn't watch that. <laughs> I, I'm, I am interested in the small canon of movies that combine uh, hardcore pornography with horror. And actually, I say small canon, but it's pretty broad. If you like if if we were to incorporate Eurotrash, we could talk about Joe D'Amato's Erotic Nights of the Living Dead. We probably won't, though. I think we might. We've kind of covered that, right? We'll stick to the American context. Mm. Where we'll talk about hard gore, which is one of the famous what's it movies just a real oddity we'll talk about an early film called widow blue a favorite of mine a very strange bisexual porn film and maybe one or two other ones too um but justin will be in touch yes oh thank you will <laughs> or thank you sir i appreciate the opportunity <laughs> so that's what we'll be doing next week on the podcast and remember get the kids out of the room when we talk about horror porn it'll be spooky and oh. sexy <laughs> So until then, my name is Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here. Just want to thank some of our new patrons who include Seth Lejac, Brooks Harley, Jay, Ryan W., Dempy, Vinius, LS, Vehement Films, John Warner, Sam Cowan, and Megan Franklin. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. And I just want to let people know if they haven't given us a review on Apple Podcasts, please do so. Especially if it's a shockingly good review this Shocktober. And I just want to remind people that the new Blu-ray from Gold Ninja Video, Thrilling Bloody Sword, a scan of a 35mm wild Taiwanese martial arts fantasy film is currently up for pre-order at goldninjavideo.com. It's the first time that I've ever tried to do a new scan on Blu-ray, so I hope that you will check it out. And with that, I now return you to your regular scheduled programming. So it's Shocktober. Oh! As <laughs> 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 oh man, I like never, a Pavlovian dog. I never got tired of Did it. Did you see that someone made some uh, fan art for No Such Thing as a Bad Movie? They drew me as a werewolf howling. <laughs> oh, that's fun. <laughs> Folks, somebody make some important Cinema Club fan art, please. Well, I don't think we've ever seen. Hmm. Oh. Somebody, well, someone got a tattoo of us. Yeah, that was quite a while ago. Um, uh, if you're listening, thank you. Uh, that was that was neat. Yeah, you know what? Shocktober. I bragged to my relatives about that. <laughs> Shocktober uh, fan art competition for the important Cinema Club. Anyway, being shocktober you know i just i just this is my month this is my opportunity my excuse to just watch nothing but horror movies horror movies from the whole span of cinema history and this week i returned to some old favorites like a comfortable old shoe like a warm blanket i watched two friday the 13th movies oh so you looked over at the giant pile of unwatched horror films you have and you knocked them out of the way i said fuck off <laughs> yeah.
I said, Ugh, all these Joe D'Amato's. No, thank you. Get the fuck out of here. No, I watched. I looked at my big Shout Factory box set of all the Friday the 13th. Ooh, I don't even think I've watched one of those <laughs> since I got the box set either. So, Oh, man. Well, you're in for a treat. I've seen them so many times. And I do love them. We did an episode on Friday the 13th yeah, many moons ago. Maybe, maybe the first shot Cobra we mm-hmm, did that. That sounds about right. I don't know what we said. I, maybe I'll just repeat myself. Well, you said th- since then, I believe, that it is your favorite slasher series. I think so. I mean, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies are better, mm-hmm. technically, but I like the ritualistic quality of the... And I like the abject nature of the Friday the 13th. They are... They're so pure. That it's so simple at first until they start shaking it up which i do actually really like oh yeah i love that i mean the later ones at least they used to get a bad rap i think maybe the fans have come around on them now but after number five each movie starts to get a goofy gimmick which one did you watch so i i watched part seven the new blood Ooh, jason versus carrie that's right there's a telekinetic girl and they have a big telekinetic showdown in this movie i mean aside from that kind of goofy element bog standard friday the 13th stuff (sighs) that i say that admiringly i had a good time it has a big problem which is there's almost no violence in it because it was cut to shreds and it was directed by john carl buchler a special effects guy so you would expect there'd be crazy special effects they only exist in like really crummy work print versions he's famous for designing the ghoulies and all of his animatronics always had a snarl on them and you could see oh that's a John Carl Buchel effect because the monster snarling well it's interesting that these Friday the 13th movies got this reputation in the in the 80s for being like pornographically violent you know Siskel and Ebert would always be railing against these movies with their hideous violence and by the time of number seven, you don't see any gore, really. No, they cut it all out because it was such, thanks to people like Siskel and Ebert, yeah. such an uproar around it that they kept making them, but they kept trimming it out. And I think that's what kind of led to the gimmicks, which is like, we got to find something else here. Yeah. What can we add to the movie instead? I mean, I love part six, the kind of self-aware one when Jason also comes back as a zombie. Yeah, I think that's probably my favorite one. That's my favorite one. It's yeah. fun. It's got a bit of an Evil Dead tone to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm being generous, but... Yeah, I mean, that one is definitely my favorite but it could not exist in a vacuum and it's only building upon everything that had come before. And I think that part six is also one of the rare ones that's made by someone who actually likes making these movies. Yeah. And that is not the case with Sean Cunningham or even Steve Miner who made or, two and three. Or Ronnie Yu, frankly. Yeah, he didn't he... want to make a Freddy versus Jason movie. He's like, what are you going to give me? Anyway, the other one that I watched this week was part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. For a long time, considered the worst one of the series. Do not agree. Yeah, I think it's one of the best. I think it's fun. It's it's kind of bad, but I like it. You know what? I'm going to drop a big controversial statement here that will get me nothing but hate comments. I know it, so you don't need to write it. I think that the one that people love the most is just not good. Part four, <laughs> the one directed by Zito. Now that one has Crispin Glover in it. Great in that. Yeah. And it's a movie that has a great opening, a fun end, and just a vast nothingness in the middle. It's, I see, I don't remember much of the middle of it. I remember the end very well. Someone gets trapped on like a boat and like a dog jumps out of a window in slow motion. That's mostly what I remember from the movie. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember much of that at all. I just remember little Corey Feldman like kicking Jason's corpse. Yeah, in slow motion at the end. Yeah. He's like, I'm you! That's what everybody remembers. I mean, that one is probably fondly regarded just because it's one of the quintessential ones. Yeah, it feels pure in a way. And the kills are very violent. And the elements are in place. It's mm-hmm. not It's not Jason's mom. It's not Jason wearing a, a sack on his head. Mm-hmm. It's pure in the yeah. way that people associate with the franchise. But you watch Jason Takes Manhattan. Which I love. So I kind of love the chutzpah of the film. I love the stuff that everyone hates about it. The fact that he's only in Manhattan at the end of the movie. And then even then, it's not really. Vancouver. Yeah, it's Vancouver. 
Vancouver except for one scene in Times Square. <laughs> one shot, pretty much. Yeah, which which I love. I love seeing Times Square. But then I love all the fake Vancouver sets, too, you know? And you love the big boat they spend most of the movie. I love that, like, Jason teleports in the movie, and it's like a joke. I do love the big boat. I love how it just looks like a, a normal-sized boat on the outside, but inside, it's like, it's the Titanic, basically. <laughs> yeah. It's got a huge, like, disco. It's got a vast boiler room. All these cabins have these giant bathrooms. It's like, what, what, what is this space? And it's that kind of unreality that is fun about the movie, where yeah, you're like, like we've it. reached the point where it's not, it's weird to say, like, not completely silly town, because it is very silly. At the end, Jason gets doused with the nuclear waste that just Lays in the cities of New York. Yeah, I like that it's silly without fully becoming self-parody. Yeah, which is what the movies would eventually become. Yeah. And so what else do you have ready to go for Shocktober on your piles? Do you have any like certain titles? Or you're like, I got to get to that. I'm kind of just going by instinct, but there are a few that I kind of want to watch. I want to watch Francis Coppola's recut of Dementia 13. Mm-hmm. I want to watch... 65 Minutes. Yeah, fantastic. I want to watch Pigs, which I've never seen. Oh, that one's actually a lot of fun. Yeah, a weird kind of rural horror film. And I want to revisit the fearless vampire killers the roman polanski horror comedy which i mean when i saw it like a long time ago i remember finding it kind of annoying but because it's not funny it's famously not funny i think it's funny i remember laughing at roman polanski like running in a circle Uh, and coming back well i remember not finding it funny but i think i might find it beautiful this time it's Mm. it's like visually and you got to remember that it is a parody of Hammer Horror Films and to watch it with that in mind. I also want to throw in some Hammer Horror Films because I've never really fully got into Hammer Horror and I'm always hoping like it'll happen for me. So I'll probably revisit Curse of Frankenstein. No, what you want to watch are like other ones like late in the cycle because that'll be up your alley. Like Dracula, like Dracula 1972 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe I should watch that or The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Or... <laughs> I'm shocked you haven't seen that one. That one's fun. Yeah, I'm shocked they haven't seen it either. I think it's just because like I remember some years ago, like 10 years ago, I got a big box set of like all the all the hits, mm-hmm. you know, Dracula has risen from the grave, horror of Dracula, all that stuff. And I just watched them one by one and was like, yeah, yeah, those Dracula ones. Yeah. Snooze. Yeah. Dracula's not in them very much. Nope, he is not. And Peter Cushing is fun in the Frankenstein ones, but I really like like Plague of the Zombies. I uh, okay, like. I got that one. I want to watch that. Yeah, that one's a lot of fun. So like the weirder ones when the directors can kind of like, you know, go off the rails and follow their own muse and yeah, the Dracula and the Frankenstein ones. That's a okay. yeah. Oh, I actually like the mummy one where the mummy's like the Terminator, like bursting through walls and I, stuff I like have, that. I saw that one when I was a kid and was, I don't know, maybe I should see it again. <laughs> Unimpressed. Unimpressed. But anyway, Shocktober, it's yours to discover. So many flavors of horror. Mm-hmm. And if people are like, ah, I wish someone would just introduce me to some kind of movie that I've never seen before for the Shocktober season. Well, you should check out October 16th, the 24-hour horror movie Mind Melter that I'm putting on. Lots of movies in there, probably some stuff that you haven't seen. Are you going to put the link to the Twitch stream in the episode? episode description indeed i will uh probably for the next two weeks before it actually happens and as per usual man i kill myself putting these together being like i need to find some movies that no one's seen (laughs) and but the fans love it yeah but sometimes i'm like you know, maybe I should just pick like, yeah, I look at like some other 24 hour horror movie marathon that's like Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw, give them what they want, right? You can throw in one of those movies. Yes, I have uh, something. You know what? I'm saying I have one of those. And when I'll tell you what it is, it's like, yeah, well, people know what it is, but not many people have seen it. But <laughs> if you want to know what it is, check it out.